So uh, um, thank you, by the way, A students, for sitting in the front row. Um, <laughs> if, you're in the, if you're in the front row, you've automatically gotten an A for the course. Just, I just want you to know that. And you can ha also have all the coffee or ice water that you'd like. Um, I hope you saw it too. We've got the uh, books for sale, although we sold out of Ab Adam Hamilton's book. Uh, tonight, so uh, we'll maybe order a few more copies of that and have those next week. Uh, Rob Bell's book is also there, and we've got a, uh, some copies of the free Bible that we're giving away, and then also the study Bibles that are about $35 a piece, um, but are, in my opinion, is the best study Bible you can buy, so if you'd like to pick that up tonight, you can still do that too. Uh, Stuart, I'm hearing a little reverb. Are we okay in the crowd, though? How's everybody up there? Is it all right? Good. All right, so... Um, I think that's all the housekeeping stuff. If, oh, if you didn't sign in, um, that, it's okay as long as we have your email address. If you registered by emailing Robin or by calling the church and, and registering, then we have your email or we should have your email. If you don't think we do, um, make sure you sign in on that sheet, one of those sheets on the table. Make sure you get your email address in there real clear and legible because next week I'm probably going to send an email out to everybody who's in the, in the class just to say, hey, here's a couple of side readings you might do um, to get ready for, for the for the course to, uh, on that night. So um, if you don't, if I don't have your email address, make sure that we, we get that, that turned in. All right, I think that's it. Let's get into the, um, the, the Game of Thrones for, for tonight. Um, but I, I wanna say a few words about the, about the, um, uh, about the Old Testament. And I, I, I said some of this last week, but I wanna reiterate it and, and add a couple more pieces. Um, people all the time, in every church I've ever served, and just about every church I think I've ever attended, tend to say, well, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament, I believe in the God of the New Testament. Or they say, I don't like the Old Testament, it's bloody and violent and, and ugly and mean and nasty. I love the New Testament because it's all about peace, love, and joy, and it's so happy and, uh, and, and all that. Those sort of, kind of, could be generally true. But if we, if we do that and we make a habit of that, it, it's something that uh, scholars and theologians call supersessionism. Uh, there's your $10 word for the night. And it's, it's, it's really easy to spell if you're taking notes. Supersessionism. And that's, that's, the, that's raising one belief or idea above another and saying this idea isn't as good as this one. And, and people tend to be supersessionistic <laughs> uh, about the New Testament over the Old Testament, that somehow the Old Testament is secondary, and therefore the New Testament is primary, and it's, it's, it's to be viewed as the better part of the Bible, not, not the Old Testament. And we, do, we get into danger when we do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, what was Jesus' Bible? What Bible did Jesus use? The, the Torah, the Hebrew Bible. It's what we call the Old Testament. So um, that worked for Jesus. And that became, those were foundational, many of them were foundational texts for him and for his, for his ministry. You read through the Apostle Paul's letters to the various churches, and they're full of sometimes of exact quotes, sometimes of allusions, uh, not illusions, but allusions, allusions back to the Old Testament. He depends on it mightily all the way through, and just about every letter he writes, it's filled with some of these things. Peter, 1 Peter, which we're going to look at, um, I think, at the end of, the, uh, of this, this series, uh, does the same thing. He makes a reference to Noah that's really kind of a cool reference and uses it in his, in his argument in the, in the letter that he writes. So I, first of all, I want you to see that the Old Testament is foundational to Christian faith because it was foundational to Jesus and his ministry and, and who he was and what he taught. And then also think about a couple other things that are in the, in the Old Testament. Where's, where does this idea uh, that Jesus proclaims 
about loving God and loving um, neighbor as yourself come from? That's from the Old Testament. Uh, where, where, does, where does the idea come that, that um, uh, shalom is something that God wants for all people? Well, that's from the Old Testament. Uh, Hebrew, or Genesis 12, when, when God calls uh, um, Abraham, and said, or he's Abram at the time, and says, come down to the promised land. I'm going I'm to build from your family uh, and, uh, and invite all nations to be blessed by you. Um, blessing for all nations, a blessing for the whole world. Where is that? That's obviously in the Old Testament. I could go on a whole bunch. Plus, there are times where the Old Testament is dealing with what's a relatively common practice, especially in antiquity, in ancient, in ancient uh, Near Eastern practice, and challenges it and actually presents a new idea. Um, can anybody think of something like that in the Old Testament? I'll, I'll buy you a cup of coffee or, or uh, whatever you want. Or some ice water. No, it's a real, a real cup of coffee at, at, at Starbucks or Stoffs um, uh, t- tomorrow. Anybody, can anybody think of uh, any, any, anyone? Think of Genesis, um, I forgot the text, 22. Um, Genesis 20, 22 is the story of Abraham um, almost sacrificing Isaac. Do you remember that story? Um, child sacrifice, the, the firstborn male, was not an unusual practice in antiquity. It was a way of saying to the God or the gods, I'm going to give my child to you as, a, as, a, as, an, as an offering and a sacrifice so that you will bless the rest of my family from here on. It's a, it's a horrific, horrible, terrible thing, but it was, it was, it was practiced. And, and so when you're reading along in, in Genesis 22, and you, you come up to this and, and it's like, okay, I'm going to go, go, go sacrifice my son, um, you just kind of going, what? what was happening here? But there's a cute little hint. And some of you read, if you've read Rob Bell's book, um, you might have seen this cute little hint in there. Uh, there's this cute little hint where, where, where uh, Abraham says, it's okay, God will provide. He's already planning not to sacrifice his son. And he's, he's already demonstrating not only faith, but a new way of seeing the world a new way of understanding God's work in the world. And it doesn't have to involve the murder of a child in order to receive a blessing on the other side. So I, I just say all that stuff as a way of, of helping us think about the Old Testament, not as that book where, oh, it's all mean and ugly and nasty, although, of course, we're going to look at some mean, ugly, and nasty stuff tonight, um, but where there's actually a whole, all kinds of hints and stories and illustrations of, of what God wants to do. We'll especially see, in, in, in a new way in the world, we will especially see this when we get to the 8th century prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Micah, they all have a new way of seeing the world and they comment on the world of, of Jerusalem and their lack of faith in the way God wants them to live and, and it's extremely hopeful, even though they use some pretty um, negative imagery at, at times. The texts themselves ultimately are, are very hopeful. Um, all right, let's, let's get into uh, our, our homework. Um, <clears throat> uh, if you would, oh, I wanted to put a couple quotes up first. Uh, Stuart, let's go with the first one. Would you put that first one up there, please? Yeah, this is, this is, this is essentially what I was saying, and it said much clearer and much clearer, cleaner and crisper for you. In the ancient Near East, your tribe was your family, your bloodline, your home, your identity. Your tribe was everything, and everyone belonged to a tribe. I, I wanted you to hear this from Rob Bell's book, because... One of, one of the things he's, he's arguing for in his book is as bloody and violent and awful as it is, it's reflecting in many of these stories the way things were. In order for your <clears throat> tribe, your family to survive, 
the practice was if, if who, who can I, here, I'll pick on Bill. If, if, Bill's, if Bill's family is, is over here on this side of the, of, of the valley, and my, my family's over here on this side of the valley, and I've got 10,000 sheep and 10,000 rams and, and 10,000 acres of great uh, land, uh, and Bill's got 1,000 of all those things, and Bill thinks, you know what, I sure would like to have that, and he's gathered a whole vast army that's bigger than mine, um, what's, what's my reaction going to be? get a bigger army, <laughs> right? And then we're going to fight to the death because I'm fighting for my family. That was a normal practice. That was especially, especially in, in ancient Palestine, in that Middle Eastern arc. Um, I'll have that map up there in a minute. So uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind as we get into these stories tonight is, is they're reflective of the culture of the day. Uh, although even the Bible itself, as we look at the stories, will we'll, we'll, um, challenge that, that, that culture. Put up the second quote, if you would. Uh, Stuart, <clears throat> you worked for the well-being of your tribe, as did everyone else in the tribe. You accumulated possessions, fought battles, made alliances, all in the name of tribal preservation. And if you did something unacceptable, something shameful, it reflected poorly on your tribe. <clears throat> and so that's, that's why some of the, the laws are so harsh and rigid and strict. If you eat this or you do that, you're going to be kicked out of the tribe or you're going to be kicked out of Israel. You're going to be kicked out. You're going to be kicked out of the family because those things affect the safety of the tribe. And again, it's reflective of the time. It's not necessarily reflective of what the Bible is ultimately moving toward in, in this arc toward peace and justice, but it's reflective of, of the time. Uh, even in the book of Ephesus, and I'll talk about this when we get into the New Testament section, there's a whole lot of stuff in there about how the family ought to behave together, especially in a Christian family in the first century, because if you misbehave, then, then the ruling government, which was Rome, would come and say, we're going to take your family away because we've heard rumors about you Christians. And the way you're misbehaving is proving it. And so, so you, you, they had some pretty strict rules and some fairly clear identity uh, ideas about how to live together, not because women were secondary or this or that or the other thing, but because it was a way to make sure the family stayed safe. I'll get into some more specifics on that um, at, at the end of the New Testament. One more quote before we jump into this um, from uh, Adam Hamilton's book, Making Sense of the Bible. And I, I fully agree with this. And here's what Adam's saying. Here's essentially what I'm saying. What I'm suggesting is that Old Testament passages about violence and war thus tell us more about the people who wrote them, hear, hear this quote, and the times they were living in than about the God in whose name they claimed authority to do these things. Do you see how important that point is? They reflect more about the people in those times and how they lived and how they viewed God than it does how God was working and acting within the world. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Stuart, you can go ahead and put the map up. We'll just leave the map up there for now. So, uh, now speaking of bloody, violent, and, and all of that, let's get, in, let's get into Joshua. I hope you, I hope you had a chance to, to read, through, read through Joshua. And, and yes, it's, it's a violent book. Yes, if you read the story, it's the story of the Battle of Jericho, right? Did you, if, you, if you had a chance to read through it. Um, a couple of things to point out as we, as we start to dive into it just a little bit. Um, uh, remember what I said last week? Joshua sends two spies in, and where's the first place they go? The hooker's house. And you can laugh. Thank you for the laughter, yes. They go to a house of prostitution. When I was a youth minister, 
When I was a youth minister, I, I had, a, I had a, 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 a series for six weeks with my youth ministry class called Famous Hookers in the Bible. Um, <laughs> and I got some phone calls. <clears throat> and, but I said, I, you know, uh, we're going to start with Rahab. We're going to look at Gomer, the wife of, of, of um, Hosea. We're going to look at a couple of other women who may have been um, uh, like this. And this is a way for me to connect with the kids and help them to see the, the, the rich uh, earthiness of, of the Bible. I mean, it really is, is, that's a good phrase there, isn't it? Yes, the rich earthiness. Um, you know, so I, I, just, I just said you know, um, last week, these two guys are spies. The first place they go is to, the, is to the house of prostitution. They've been in the desert for 40 years wandering around. If you're a soldier and you've been in the desert, you know, you, there's, it's not an unusual thing. But here's the beauty of the story. That becomes, that becomes a means of salvation for the people. And here's what's really fascinating about that. So who helps to save the Israelites as they move in on Jericho? A woman, who by the way is a prostitute. Now that is not the way the stories are supposed to go in antiquity. And so right here in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we have an illustration of a woman who becomes the means, not the savior, but the means of salvation for the people who are, who are trying to follow and move on into the, into the promised land. Uh, another piece of that, did you read the Ruth story tonight? Some of you, are, I just wanted you to skim it. I hope you skimmed through it. If you read it, it's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful story. Um, Rahab has a son. What's, what's her son's name? Boaz. Boaz marries who? Ruth. Thank you. Boaz marries Ruth. Both Ruth and Rahab are in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. And again, and, and the story of Ruth, which we'll get into more, 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 more uh, carefully in a few moments, uh, is a beautiful story of, of this foreign woman on the outside who becomes the means of helping the family survive. So you see what's happening right here in Joshua. Now, when I was a kid, I loved the Battle of Jericho, and we sang a song, Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, you know, and all that. I'm starting to dance again, sorry. <laughs> You know, and there's, some, there, there's, some, oh, there's a couple of great, really fun uh, camp songs that go with the Battle of Jericho. But, you know, here's a, here's a piece that, uh, that I, I really don't like pointing out, but I, but I need to. Does anybody remember how they destroyed the city? They marched around it. What did they do as they marched around it? Yeah, they played trumpets. They carried the Ark of the Covenant. It's an act of worship. And it's an ugly thing. Here they are behaving in a way that ought to be a liturgically beautiful moment. And yet at the end of it, they have, according to the story, utterly wiped them out, except for everybody in Rahab's family. Just wiped them out. The good news about the Bible is the Bible corrects that. And it especially gets corrected in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah, where they talk constantly about God's desire to go to the nations, to go out to the peoples, to welcome anyone and everyone in. And then Jesus really then echoes that, that in his ministry and hammers every day about how wide open God's mercy and grace is. Um, so it's in there. It's in the Bible. I don't want to ignore it. There are some beautiful parts of it. As a kid reading these stories, I loved them. And that, that is actually part of it, too. I wanted to be sure I said this. Part of the beauty of, of, the, of the Joshua story is, is that 
the writers who are putting this together in antiquity aren't that worried about the violence. I'm not excusing it, but they're not that worried about it. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to create a, a story for people who are going through hard stuff, through tough times. And they want to tell this story as a way of saying, I'll keep picking on Bill, and then you'll never sit in the front row again. <laughs> you know, let's, let's say Bill's had a tough time, some terrible things have happened, and, and the rabbi comes over to Bill and says, Bill, I want you to know, you know, when things are tough, God promises to be, be there with you. Even if you don't feel it or sense it or know it, somehow in some way God will be faithful to you. And I just want you to believe that. Or, or maybe, maybe somebody's lost their job or maybe somebody's lost their, 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 their child or maybe their farm has been destroyed in a storm. Um, some scholars believe the book of Joshua didn't get its final production and, and editing and put together until around 500 or so BC, which is when the Israelites would have been in captivity in Babylon. They would have been in exile. And so some people think this story was written as a way of saying, hey, everything's going to be great. Now, how many of you have seen the movie Star Wars? Any of them? Really? Some of you haven't? Oh, oh. Uh, so you see the movie Star Wars. Do you, when the movie is over, do you go home and contemplate, oh, there were many, many thousands of people who were killed. This is a terribly horrible, awful, violent movie. Probably not. You go home going, yeah, baby, we kicked Darth Vader's butt. <clears throat> it's meant to inspire. It's meant to say, you know, peace, love, and joy, that good will destroy evil, etc. And some, that's a way to look at the Joshua story, is to really think of it in that light and in that tone as a sort of heroic story. Now, a couple, a couple of things also about this. There is absolutely zero archaeological evidence that Jericho was ever destroyed. Zero. Later in the book, it says that the city of Ai, Ai, was destroyed. Zero evidence of that happening. Now, how do we know that? Well, because when archaeologists go in, that, for example, you know, you've heard of Megiddo. Uh, it's in, in northern Palestine. It's the name that gives the name to Armageddon. Megiddo is constant. Megiddo, where's the map? Megiddo is, um, uh, you see where the N in the Mediterranean Sea is on the map? Go north along the coastline past Caesarea, all the way on up there to uh, oh, about where that little elbow is. Um, and then, in, in, well, you can see Megiddo right there, just, just in from uh, Caesarea. That's, that's kind of like the crossroads of, of antiquity. Lots of big battles happened right there. So why do you think this, this, this mythology grows up around Armageddon? Well, because in, in, in antiquity, that's where the really big battles happen, and, and they would happen there and fight over. And Megiddo itself is destroyed I forget. Julie, you were on that tour with us. How many times? Seven times? Eight times? A bunch of times. And there's, there's, they, they can tell because every time it was destroyed, a new city was built on top of the rubble. And so there's layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of rubble where Megiddo has built up like it's a hill now. And it, it's only a hill because it's all those thousands of years of rubble where those wars happened. There's nothing like that in Jericho. Anybody been to Jericho? Anybody been there? Have some of you been there? Yeah, it's, it's like this dusty, dirty little nothing of a town. Um, so that, I think, actually bolsters my view that the stories, especially in Joshua, were written not as a way of reporting actual, factual, historical things that happened, but rather as a way of saying, wow, let me tell you this story. This is how God was faithful. Um, you know, preachers tell stories all the time. And, we, and we, sometimes the stories are combinations of stories, or we take a little bit of this and take a little bit of that and, and combine it together. We tell stories to inspire and motivate and maybe to challenge. It's, it's when a preacher is preaching, she or he is not repeating history. He's preaching a sermon. We'll talk more about that when we get to the Gospels. All right. I think that's all I wanted to say about 
uh, about Rahab, uh, the first and very famous uh, prostitute in, named in the book, book of Joshua. Now, let's, turn, let's go on to, jo to Judges uh, 4, uh, one, 1 through 23. Um, and you're going you're to pick up on a little bit of a theme here. <clears throat> in, in Judges 4, we meet a judge named Deborah. Now, why does that sound unusual? Or does that sound unusual? And, and if so, why? So what? It's a woman. It's a woman for goodness sake, right there in the Old Testament, right there in the old Hebrew Bible, there's a woman who's in charge, who's a judge. And she even has a general, who's by the name, why his name is Barak, it's kind of interesting, <laughs> who reports to him. Now he's in charge of the military and all, but she gives him instructions. The way the story is told, the Lord tells her what to do and he, she tells Deborah what to do. Again, I'm bringing that up because the, the book of Judges is full of all these men. Can anybody, can anybody name some of the famous ones? They were famous when I was in Sunday school. Famous judges. How about Gideon? Remember Gideon? Gideon, just give me a few good men. I'll take care of this problem, and it's a cool story. What about the guy with the long hair? Samson, right? He was a judge. There's a lot we could do about Samson as a good example of what not to do and how not to live your life. Um, so the book of Judges tells the story of these, again, of these famous judges who won these big battles or gave their life up and did these amazing things and saved the people. And one of the key, key judges in the book of Judges is Deborah, a woman. Um, my executive minister at the church I served in Kansas City was named Carla Aidy. Carla has, has a, um, uh, a portrait on her wall uh, of Deborah. And, it's, and she has a battle helmet on, and she's obviously dressed and ready for battle, and, and, and Carla kept that on her wall. Um, she, uh, by the way, Carla is the new senior minister at Country Club Christian Church, where I, I used to be. And I told her, you are ready in every possible way, and I would go dressed like Deborah every day. <laughs> <clears throat> Um, but, but, but Deborah's an inspiring story to, to, to a lot of women in ministry because she's, she's, again, early on in a leadership position. Obviously, she's educated, she's trained, she's respected in the community, and she helps to guide them. But the book of Judges, again, more so than Joshua, is problematic because it tells these stories over and over and over again of entire communities being wiped out. Go in and kill them. Kill them all. Men, women, children. Oxen, donkeys, rams, goats, sheep, kill them all, wipe them out. But what's interesting is almost every section in Judges begins with this line, and the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then a judge comes in and tries to kind of guide them back, and then they mess up again, and the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then you get to the last chapter. If you've got your Bibles, turn, turn to that last chapter. 21. I'm going to read 20, verses 24 and 25. Let me set it up a little bit for what, what's happened. Uh, the Benjamites, we don't know why, but for some reason, and it, it, it never explains it, um, they weren't supposed to, the, the Benjamin tribe wasn't supposed to prosper. And they decided, well, we've got to help the Benjaminites prosper. Anybody read that whole chapter? I didn't, I didn't assign the whole chapter. Did you read it? And what happens in there? Do you remember? You need some wives, guys? Oh, well, here's, these women from Shiloh are going to be over here dancing. Um, go and take them back and make them your wife. Uh, what's that called? Kidnapping and rape. Uh, and maybe even slavery, you could say. 
And then we get to the end of that chapter. So the Israelites departed from there at that time by tribes and families, and they went out from there to their own territories. Last verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's a Hebrew way of saying. That's a good translation of the Hebrew text, but it's, it's more idiomatic than that. I think that's the right word to use. What it's saying is these people were just messed up. They were messed up all the time. They did evil all the time, all the time. You need some proof? Read back through all these stories. <laughs> Read back through all these stories. Constantly, constantly, constantly messed up. And, and what's fascinating is, in those days there was no king. When we get to the next section, we're going to look at Ruth in a minute, but when we get to the next section, all of a sudden we start hearing about the people crying for a king. We need a king. And, and, and the way the prophet speaks to the people, this is what, the, what God says to the, peop, to the prophet, basically. The prophet's like, really, seriously, you want a king? You don't want a king? Look at Egypt, how messed up they are. Look at our neighbors all around. They have kings. These kings, they, they suck power and, and money, and they form slavery, and they do all these terrible things. You know, we've got judges, and we, if you'll just follow the Ten Commandments, you'll just do, you know, live in shalom, and peace. it'll be fine. No, 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 we need a king. We need somebody in charge. And so God basically says, all right, fine give him a king. Which even, by the way, theologically, that's a fascinating thing. <laughs> God going, okay, whatever. You can have whatever you want. <laughs> kind of sounds like a parent, though, doesn't it? You know, it's like, really? You want to stay up till 2 o'clock in the morning watching uh, TV, and then you, you got to get up at 6 for school, and you think you can do fine? All right, fine, good. Stay up till 2 o'clock. Because I'm going to drag your butt out of bed at 6. And, you know, maybe they'll learn. Well, it takes the Israelites a long time to learn. But that's basically what the, what the author of Judges is saying here, here is, Hits is why they needed a king. He's writing in defense of the monarchy. They needed a king because they just, on their own, the people did sight in the eyes of the Lord. The people did sight in the eyes of the Lord. The people did uh, evil, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, fine, you probably need a king. And, and they, <clears throat> that was at a time when there was no king. <clears throat> then we go to Ruth. And this is just, just mind-boggling to me. Uh, I, this is something I discovered. I honestly, I had never, never done this comparison until about five years ago. Judges, men over and over and over and over and over again using what to try to save the tribe? B Bill and Glenn were fight, 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 fight. Yeah. Then we get to Ruth. Immediately after the book of Judges. And who is Ruth? A foreign woman. She's from Moab, a Moabit, a Moab. How do you say that, Jim? Yeah, what Jim said. She's from Moab. She's from, she's from Moab. She's a foreigner. She, they hate the Moabites. Hey, I got it. They hate them. They can't stand them. The Jews can't stand them. And yet, uh, her mother-in-law is Naomi. She has two sons. They fall in love with these two Moabite girls, and they've started to create a little family. And they're getting, they're getting this family going. And then the two sons die. And the Jewish law said that if you're married to a Jewish man, you have to marry his brother so you can continue on that family line. Well, Naomi is well past giving birth. And she is just, uh, her, her, the word she says is Mara. She's bitter. Her sons are dead. Her family line is dead. You know, because she's too old to have a baby. 
and then, and then are, is, is Ruth and her sister, are they going to wait forever for Naomi to have a baby, grow up, if it's a boy, finally two of them grow up to become old enough to marry. You, you see what the problem is? It's just not going to work. So she sets them free. But Ruth says, no, no, no. Where you go, I will go. Your people are my people. It's a beautiful story. Then she meets Boaz. And there's all kinds of intrigue around Boaz. There's some really, you, you almost, reading the book of Ruth, you almost have to approach it like when you read Shakespeare. You know, I never understand Shakespeare when I read it, but when I see it performed on the play, I go, oh, that's what that means. In Ruth, there's a lot of subtle little things happening that if you're not a Hebrew person, you don't pick up on the subtleties. Um, and, and some of the smart, smart comments she makes. For example, when, when Boaz meets her, and I'm hoping you skimmed it or at least looked at the stories a little bit. When Boaz meets her, he sees her in the field working with the other folks uh, doing some gleaning in the field, and, and he's kind of like, uh, hey, um, Ruth, Listen, don't work out there with them. Come work over here with these folks and let me keep an eye on you. Um, do you get it? <laughs> you know, he's, I mean, uh, my, our son Stephen would be much better at portraying this. He's a real actor, but Stephen, I can just see Stephen playing this play. He's like, um, excuse me, I gotta go take care of this problem. You know, he, he, and Boaz goes over and takes care of this little problem. And it's this, this attractive woman from Moab that he says, well, come on over here and, and you can do this over here. And I'll, I'll, it'll kind of ease your day. And her response is this great sarcasm. It's like, Whatever. <laughs> and that's not what the Hebrew says. That's my translation. It's kind of like, whatever. You, you, you think you're something, and you think you're all that. And okay, fine. And, but it's this playful, delightful little commentary that goes on between them. And then, then there's this scene. Um, see if I can get the, right, the phrase right, how uh, scholars describe it. That is sexually ambiguous. She spends the night with him on the thresher floor. Uh, yeah. Now, what does that mean exactly? We, we don't know for sure, but it's kind of hinting at, oh, there's some romance here. And then, and then Boaz says, you need to get up before the sun's up and, and not let anybody see you in here, which adds to the intrigue. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you because it's just so earthy and real and raw and wonderful and sounds like us. But here's what I really want you to see. Oh, by the way, she marries Boaz, and they have a kid, and their kid has a kid, and who is he? King David. King David. When you read Matthew chapter 1, Rahab, the mother of Boaz, who's married to Ruth, who's the grandmother of David, these two women, outsiders, foreigners, are in the genealogy of Jesus. That's why, it's why we have to study the genealogy, because there's a ton of really good stuff like that to be mined from the genealogy. We'll, we'll look at that more in depth when, when we get there. But here's what I really want to say. In Judges, Bill and Glenn fight it to the death. Bill beats me and he wipes out my tribe. Tells his men, take 400 women if you need them. Drag them back to your place, make them your wives. <clears throat> Why? Because the, the tribe's in danger. If we, can't, if we can't have babies and keep making families and keep going on, we're going to fade from the earth. That's the way they did it. Naomi's family is in danger. The very next story, Judges to Ruth. And instead of violence, these women conspire. You know, Naomi makes sure that Boaz runs into Ruth. They conspire and find a way to continue the family and the tribe without violence, without resorting to warfare. 
I'm getting into dangerous territory here, but I'm going to say this out loud. Maybe it's time for more women to be in leadership. Wait, I'm going to take a picture of all the ladies that raised <laughs> <laughs> Say that one more time. <laughs> Because, think of the church. Think of the church in the last 100 years. Not just our church, but the church. The church universal. For years, we had a volunteer workforce that ran the church. There might be a minister, and 95% of the time it's been a man who was in charge but who, uh, who brought the muscle and the energy and the steam and the organizational ability and all of that and really helped the church prosper? It was women. And, you know, 50 years ago, well, uh, 70 years ago, except for that brief time during World War II, women didn't work outside the home. And so there was time. They were available. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that women shouldn't work outside the home and so they should come back in, into the church and be volunteers. No. But we had that huge volunteer uh, task force uh, in every church because women cared about it and, and it was really women that helped the church grow and become strong in a way that, that actually we had not seen for hundreds of years. I mean, the church in the United States of America the last 200 years is stronger than most anything in the previous three, four, five hundred years in, outside of the Roman Catholic Church, at least in the Protestant Church unbelievably strong in the United States. And I would argue that part of that strength came from all those females who could volunteer. So we're not going to go back to those days because we want women to be equal to men, but by bringing those female voices into leadership, and not just on the board, but also on the staff, also in, in positions like my friend Carla, who's now the senior minister at Country Club Christian Church. I'm pretty proud of the fact that I could leave there and they would look at the executive minister and say, she's got the talent we need. Do you want to be this person? And she said yes, and they made that happen. That's a pretty cool thing. It's happening around the world, and I, and I, I think it's, it's time we finally caught up to Ruth is kind of where I'm going with, with all of that. It's a beautiful thing, and it's right there, and it's, it's in your Bibles. All right, uh, let's, let's roll on. <clears throat> Look at Samuel, if I can read my notes, 1 Samuel 18, 7 and 8. In this text, we are given a very good picture of King Saul's problem. Remember, this is, I call it tonight the Game of Thrones. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings is like a prelude, a prequel to the Game of Thrones television show. Um, uh, look at seven and eight. And the women sang to one another as they made merry. Saul and David have been out in battle. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry for this saying, displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day on. Verse 10, the next day an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul and raved within his house. Do you see what's happened? They finally got a king. They finally got a king, a strong leader. And, and, and I won't take time to go through all the stories, but Saul was a brilliant military commander. 
He was a brilliant military commander. He won his battles. Again, there's some bloody stuff in there. We'll get into that. But he won his battles. He gave strength to, this, to, the, to the country. He was able to strengthen their borders, to all kinds of amazing things. And, and one of his chief persons to help him was David. And David gets all this acclaim. And David, Saul can't stand it. He was a great military leader and a terrible politician. Because if he's a good politician, what's he going to do? He's going to praise David. He's going to put David out there and say, are you kidding? This guy, let's give him, let's give him some honor and praise. I'm going to make him vice king or, or whatever they would have done. You know, something like that. And instead, Saul just falls apart. He falls apart completely. Later on in the story, um, he will go to the witch of Endor. Um, and that is not a character from Star Wars, in case you're curious. He goes to the witch of Endor. And, and essentially for a couple of chapters before that, this is towards the end of his life. This is, this is him dealing with David and all the jealousy. And there's all kinds of intrigue and there's a ton of intrigue and, and maybe someday I'll do a Bible study on First and Second Samuel. There's all, all this is happening in the, in the story and basically David is, is clearly winning out and Saul is losing his battles now. His, his power is so weak, his ability to think clearly about what needs to be done next is so weak that he can't win a battle. He, he's lost the people. But the, the losing of the people begins when he begins to ask out loud, what do the people want? What do the people want? What do the people want? Have you ever met a strong leader who made everybody happy? I haven't. I, never. A strong leader needs to be somebody who knows what to do for the collective, for the group, for the church, for the country, for the school, for the family, for whatever it is. That strong leader needs to be able to lead even though she or he knows he may get some arrows. My friend Mary McClure is a, a retired executive from Hallmark in, in Kansas City. And, and she said, if you're going to be a leader, you better be ready for the arrows that are going to hit you in the back. Because that's part of it. Saul wanted nothing. He, Saul wanted a claim from the start. He wanted a claim. He wanted that, that sense of, oh, look at me, look at me. He even, he even ends up going to this witch of Endor, and, and she conjures up the, the, um, the ghost of of Samuel, who was the judge that made him the king and all this stuff. And Samuel's like, I just died and you brought me back. This is not good. <laughs> and that's, again, that's the Glenn Miles translation. That's essentially what he, he says in there. But, but here's, here's why I'm telling this story and why I wanted to bring this up tonight uh, in, our, in our study and our discussion is it's beautiful how the Bible still speaks. We don't have to get into politics or anything, but you can probably think of some stories in our own political history in the United States where we needed a strong leader and it didn't work out. Yeah, that's good. Didn't, Bill Milkey, tweet, tweet that. We needed a strong leader and it didn't work out. That's like, that's a Doris Kearns Goodwin book in one sentence. <laughs> that's really good. You see that there's, there's so much beauty and power and richness in these stories. That especially when we get caught up in taking it literally, was it really an evil spirit that came? You know, I, no, I don't believe in that sort of thing. Although I've been in the presence of evil. I've, I've been in places where people were extraordinarily disturbed as a result of some terrible things that had happened to them completely out of their power. I knew a woman in San Francisco, her name was Luella. When she was born, she, her face was disfigured she spoke, she never really learned how to speak very well because of the disfigurement in her speech. She was, her parents thought that she was, um, oh, the phrase back then was mentally retarded. 
<clears throat> and so her father, who hated having this disfigured, um, low-intelligence child, just used to beat her every day, lock her in a closet. Well, she finally got free of all that in her, in her late teens. She walked with a terrible limp. She, her, lip, her lip permanently um, drooped and she drooled, but she came to the first Christian church in San Francisco where my, where my dad was, and those people just loved her and just brought her, brought her into the fold and cared for her, found out she was very intelligent, could read and had all kinds of abilities and skills that, that had been ignored. She, she was 45 years old. She looked like she was probably 85. And, and I'll never forget the night that we found out it was her birthday. It was at a Bible study like this with about this many people, <laughs> eight or nine people in my dad's little church in, in San Francisco. But somebody ran out and bought a birthday cake. And at the end of the Bible study, they had the cake, brought it out, had a candle or two on there with the candles. And, and, and we, we sang happy birthday to her. And she cried and cried. And then when she blew out the candles, you know, because of this problem with her mouth, she sort of sprayed the cake, and you bet we ate that cake. <laughs> we went ahead and ate that cake. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment, a beautiful thing when God's people pay attention to each other and listen to each other and are able to honor those around them with whatever needs to be honored. All right, that's, let's, let's move to um, uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 1. Now, <clears throat> David is dying. And, and by the way, I mean, think about David. How, how many stories could we, we, could we fill tonight about David, King David? Uh, I mean, just tons of stuff about David. He sees a cute woman uh, bathing on top of her house. From, he's up on his palace, sees her over there. Her, what's her name? Bathsheba, and he uh, has a little affair with her. She gets pregnant. He calls home her husband from the front lines. By the way, Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, a foreign man serving in, in Israel's army, but he is such a righteous man, he pays attention to God's rules more so than the king does. He refuses to go in and sleep with his wife. He stays out on the porch because while his men are in battle, he just thinks that's wrong, that he would go and enjoy the comfort of his wife while his men are out on the front lines. So what does David do? Sends him back to the front lines where it's almost guaranteed he's going to be killed, and he is. Adultery, murder, it's all kinds of intriguing things about, about David, who also wrote the words, created me a clean heart, O God. At least the tradition says that he does. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit in me and renew a right spirit within me. This, this man had this amazing mix of, of beauty and evil. Here we are at the end of his life. 1 Kings 1. I got 15 extra credit points for knowing the answer to this story when uh, Professor Robert Owens, who was this brilliant Old Testament professor, wore glasses like this, never took them off, and, you know, just, and, and gave a very, very, he was a great lecturer, but he stayed with his notes, and he would stay right here, and he would talk on his notes and do everything, kind of look up like this. And, and then out, out of nowhere, we're just getting ready to study First Kings. He looks up from his, his, from his notes like this. Does anyone know the name of the woman that was brought to King David when he was on his deathbed? And uh, skinny little smart mouth Glenn in the back goes, oh, sure, Abishag. And he, he walks out and he goes, Mr. Miles, you cannot, how did you know that? <laughs> I can't tell you my answer. <laughs> 
but he gave me 15 extra credit points for my, for my, for my final. Here's, here's, here's how I knew this, because when I was a kid, we, we used to look up all the racy parts of the Bible. It, it's one of the things we used to do as a kid. My dad had, my dad had this uh, uh, thing called a concordance. Have you ever seen a concordance? And now you can just look them up online. But you, back then you have to have a, he had a, he had an unabridged concordance of the King James Bible. So, you know, we looked up certain words and then looked to see where those were in the Bible. Um, <laughs> Abishag. Abishag is brought to King David on his deathbed and forced to sleep with him. Have you read um, Rob Bell's book? Some of you read Rob Bell's book? He, he starts it off by talking about the fact that um, as Moses was getting ready to die, he could still make babies. It's in the Bible. He's quoting the Bible when he says that. That's kind of a big thing for leaders in antiquity. If you can still make a baby, then you're still in charge. And Moses, according to the, to the Bible, was still able to make babies, and then he died. And it's kind, of a, it's kind of a throwaway line, but Rob Bell makes a big deal out of it, saying, hey, this stuff's in the Bible. Isn't this cool? Well, in, in, in the king's instance, if the king could successfully have sex with a woman, then he was still considered physically able to still be the king. What's sad about that story, though, is how a woman is taken and forced and pushed and used. Frederick Buechner, who's one of my favorite writers, said, more or less, I'm paraphrasing, it wasn't the first time a young person from a nation was forced into a battle that wasn't their own. And it wasn't the last. So here, here's, here's stupid little adolescently immature Glenn at 13 looking up this stuff and actually not realizing there's a powerful point being made here. Another example of abuse, abuse of power, abuse of a man over and against a woman, using the woman for their own needs and goods. The story, the story that comes to mind is John chapter 8. Jesus is sitting. Some men come up to him. They throw a woman down in front of him. She committed adultery. The law says we should kill her. What's fascinating is the law also says the man who committed adultery should be killed too, but we don't have him. Jesus looks up and says, fine. The one without sin may throw the first stone. The Bible says they drop their stones, they drop their rocks. And one by one, beginning with the oldest, they walked away. Jesus looks at her and says, where are the ones who condemn you? Go. Do you see how that story goes back to Abishag? It's Jesus' way of saying, no longer are a few men in power going to rule how we run this world. Instead, we're going to work together for peace, wholeness, etc. All, all, all of that stuff that I was saying earlier. It's... it's, it's yeah, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and I just wanted to be sure that, that you saw it. Now let's go to 1 Kings 9.15. <clears throat> what was, what was uh, King David's son? What was the name of his son who becomes a king? Solomon. Solomon was what kind of a person? Wise. Um, we'll talk about this when we get to Proverbs and to... Um, <clears throat> uh, 
sorry, I'm moving slow here. When we get to Proverbs, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, who wrote those Proverbs and who wrote Ecclesiastes and some other things that are uh, fully attributed to, to Solomon. Um, but I, I, I might be shocking some of you tonight, but this comes straight out of the Bible. First Kings chapter 9, um, it says, verse 15, this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the house of the Lord and his own house. What's another word for forced labor? Slavery. Slavery. Why did the Israelites leave Egypt? Because the Pharaoh had them in slavery. And God said to Moses, I've heard my people cry. Go and tell that Pharaoh, let my people go. Remember what I said? The most brilliant political sermon ever delivered in four words. I think that's right. Let my people go. Yes, four words. Hundreds of years later, Solomon's the new Pharaoh. Forced labor, slavery. Read through the whole account, the whole story. You find out that he's become an arms dealer. He had horses and chariots and swords and shields. And he goes to Megiddo and they win a battle there. And, and, and I, think the, I think it's Pharaoh who gives uh, Solomon and his new wife a wedding gift of, of more horses and stuff. And then the next thing you know, Solomon's selling and trading. He's, he's, selling, he's selling weapons for money. He's building his kingdom. He's taking from everyone and letting a few live in glory and wealth. Solomon has become the new Pharaoh. And that's not me. That's the way the Bible is telling the story. Because they had forgotten. They had forgotten their own story. By the time Solomon becomes king, he wants to have all the power, all the glory, like all the kings around him. Now, there's some wise stories about him. Remember the story about the two babies and, you know, the two mothers arguing over which, I mean, the, the two mothers arguing over the one baby. And so it's a cute little story. It kind of sets him up as being a wise man, all of that. And there's some other things that, that may be attributed to Solomon that are actually are in the Proverbs. That's fine, too. All of that's there. But the real story of Solomon is this brilliant wise man who ends up getting sucked into power. He has all these concubines and wives and all this, all of this stuff. And after Solomon's death, the whole thing goes to, what's the phrase? Hell in a handbag, somebody said on the front row. I didn't say that. Let the podcast, podcast note that. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing falls apart. There's king after king. There's a couple of decent kings who rise up, but the whole thing just falls apart. And then the, the next thing you know, a couple hundred years later, a few hundred years later, they're dragged off to Babylon because they forgot their story. They forgot who they are. And when you forget your story, you lose your way. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but I, I threw this um, <clears throat> next little couple of texts in there just to, just to give you something for um, winning a bar, a, bar, uh, a bar bet if it ever comes up. I'm sure if you're hanging out having a glass of wine with somebody, um, they're going to want to, and they ask you all of a sudden, do you think there's any, any um, contradictions in the Bible? Well, yeah, actually there are. Um, and if they say, well, where? Then you can say um, 2 Samuel 24, 1, and 1 Chronicles 21, 1. Can you get those up there, Stuart, for me? Get the, put the first one up. Um, 2 Samuel 24, 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, count the people of Israel and Judah. Who told, who told David to take a census? The Lord. the Lord. Put the next slide up. 
Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count the people of Israel. Oops. Now, I'm sounding like I'm being a flippant jerk. Let me, let me make, be really clear. The books of Chronicles were written about 300 or maybe four or 500 years after the books of Samuel and Kings. And what the, book, what the chroniclers know, what the, I'm doing this like they were typing, um, what, they, what they knew when they were writing, what they knew is that when David took a census, it irritated the whole country. And so hundreds of years later, it couldn't have been God, it must have been Satan. Satan. Remember the church lady on Saturday Night Live? You know, it, it must have been Satan. <clears throat> so it's really, uh, I wanna be careful how I say this, it feels contradictory what it is is revelatory. I mean, what, what stories do we know in, uh, well, let's talk, let's just put it out there. What story do we know from our own history that seems to have at least a couple of different versions of why the war was fought? The Civil War. When I went to seminary in Tennessee, we met uh, Willis Harvey. He was our landlord. He was a wonderful guy. He was born in the house we lived in. Um, lived across the street. When you go pay rent, I'd have to go pay 150 bucks a month, if you can imagine that much. I'd, I'd go across the street and, and write my check and say, you know, Mr. Harvey, how you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. Sit down. Let's talk a while. You know, you didn't pay the rent and just leave. You sat down and talked for an hour. I, I discovered soon that he loved football, so I always paid the rent on Monday night during Monday night football. <laughs> And I, and I go over at halftime, and the second half of the get started, I said, well, you better get on out of here. I'm going to watch the game. Okay, good. I'm out, I'm out of here. Uh, one, one night, we, early in our time there in Tennessee, we got into a conversation. I said something about the Civil War, and he said, you mean the War of Northern Aggression? I said, I've never heard that before. And then he gave me a whole different version. Now, we're not going to get into the discussion of that. But here we are 150 years later. And we're still arguing about it. And there's still a couple of different versions. The Bible's just reflecting that. It's just reflecting that. What we thought maybe was a God-inspired thing, it turns out maybe it wasn't. It wasn't such a good idea. In fact, this is even a political commentary. Because uh, taking a census is a political act. And a, hundred year, a, few, a few hundred years later, the people went, oh, wow, yeah, we probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, um, all right, one more, one more slide. And then I, I promise five minutes for questions. Uh, Mike, where, where, where did Mike go? There you are. If you can come man one of these mics. Um, and, then, and then I need one more volunteer maybe for this other mic over here. So like, Ned, if you can get that. Um, I said this a, more or less something like this a moment ago. When we forget our story, we're in danger of losing our way. In many ways, I, I could almost argue, in fact, this is, this is, this is uh, a line more or less from my doctoral dissertation. That's what the Old Testament is doing. The people continually forgot. The people continually forgot. They screwed up, they messed up, they got in trouble, God forgave them. They got in trouble, God forgave them. They got in trouble, God forgave them. We're really gonna look at some texts next week that, that deal with that, but that's, that's the, the word I want you to hear. Solomon forgot the story. Let my people go. Okay, that's fine, good. Now that we're out, I'm gonna take control of you people and force you to be my slaves and build my nice big temple and, and house and all of that. Okay, um, questions. Any questions tonight? Anybody have a question that you'd like to have answered. I'm going to hang around afterwards too, so if you just want to talk one-on-one, I'm happy for that. Right here, Mike or Ned. Third row, there you go. I just wondered if you had uh, a synonym that you would suggest for judges because, you know, in, our, in my mind at any rate, it's, you know, the guy on the bench making decisions about legal issues, <laughs> yeah. and the judges yeah. really weren't yeah, in that. that's not exactly what they did, no. Um, although that sometimes, uh, you could almost think of them as mayors because they oversaw a certain particular area. 
So a mayor might be a good synonym for that. They were, they were in charge of that particular collection of folks in that particular area or that particular tribe. Um, but yeah, they weren't judges who sat on a bench and people came and made decisions to them, yeah. Although it does say well, she was sitting under the, what tree was she sitting under? Where's Jim, what she was sitting, when, was Deborah sat under the Mamron tree or something like that? I feel bad that I don't know that. I just got demoted in the jet cadets for Jesus. <laughs> Other questions? All right, it's 828. We will, we will finish now. Why don't you stand together and let's have a prayer. Remember, you can still pick up uh, one of the Bible study Bibles or one of the other books that's over there. If you want a, a, one of the complimentary Bibles, those are over there too. <clears throat> Good and gracious God, we're grateful for the way this word continues to speak and the way you continue to speak to all of us. Give us open hearts that we might love fully, open minds that we might understand completely, and open hands that we will serve fully. In Christ's name, amen. Yeah. Night. <laughs>